0: The world is talking. The world is talking. World Talk Radio.
1: This is
2: Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1862, the Union military expedition captured the largest city in the Confederacy, New Orleans. In the course of that campaign, a little-known event took place. The Confederate garrison of Fort Jackson rebelled against its officers and staged a mutiny. We'll find out what that mutiny has to tell us about the campaign, the Confederacy, and the meaning of the war itself from our guest, Michael D. Pearson, author of Mutiny at Fort Jackson, today on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Please, my daughter, I think she might hurt herself. Okay, ma'am. Her arms and legs are moving in all different directions. Ma'am, is that music I hear? Yeah, I put on the radio and then she just lost control. Ma'am, she might be trying to dance. What? Dancing, ma'am. No, 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 I've seen dancing and that's not it.
3: The less art kids get, the more it shows. Please visit us at americansforthearts.org.
1: Art. Ask for more. A public service message brought to you by Americans for the Arts and the Ad Council.
0: You're listening to World Talk Radio.
2: Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you today from the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. It's a Nice spring day, a little overcast but warm at last, and we've moved into the spring youth soccer season. The Greenville Stars have taken the field once again, losing 8 to nothing in their first game last Saturday, but roaring back uh, to tie 1-1 to on Sunday against another team. This is uh, girls 13 and under youth soccer here in eastern North Carolina, and I know you're all on tenderhooks each week to hear how the Stars are doing, so I'll. I'll certainly keep you informed. Um, when they win, I will remind you that I'm the coach of the team, otherwise not. Um, well, there is the uh, legal disclaimer to be added, speaking from ECU but not for ECU, uh, nor does the guest uh, speak for his institution, uh, nor does it speak for him, I'm sure. We will uh, get to our, our, our guest and a very interesting story today in a few minutes after we take care of the housekeeping um, donations to the program are welcome as always at uh, civilwartr at aol.com. PayPal can be sent there. And you can look at the um, the template of the show's new uh, informational website, cwtr.org. Uh, many thanks to Bob, who is the webmaster for this and has set it up. Uh, It waits only for me to plug in some data, some pictures, some information, which I pledge I will do at some point, but this past week has been, uh, without exception, the busiest and most difficult and convoluted week in my five-year career here at East Carolina University due to the economic downturn, um, the cuts in budgets, the rescission, uh, the taking out of money from the current budget. Uh, which is even worse than cutting next year's budget because you have to deal with things you already thought you were going to buy. Um, In addition to that, the attempt to carry out searches for new faculty members to replace those who have left, which is hard to do in an era when other departments are cutting. It's all very confusing, and it has just been a constant uh, stream of events such that when I got in the classroom yesterday and got to teach for an hour, it was like a vacation. Uh, I remembered that's why I'm here at the university. I get to do education once in a while. And it's a vacation now, getting to talk with you here on Civil War Talk Radio, uh, something other than the uh, administrative things that that fill the days otherwise. Uh, We did have an intellectual highlight on campus, not Civil War related, but uh, historian Felipe Fernandez-Armesto, author of Millennium, And uh, many, many other books. He's written about the Spanish Armada. He's written a history of food. Uh, Fascinating scholar came to our campus uh, this week to give a talk on Amerigo Vespucci, and we learned that our country is named for a truly loathsome individual, Uh, but appropriately so. Uh, We find as he reinvented himself many times and uh, took the, the efforts of Columbus and others for his own credit and made himself into a famous explorer without actually doing very much. Um, and isn't that what America uh, to this day is all about, reinventing oneself, becoming something new, changing careers, changing identities, and uh, not being uh, held back by uh, how you were born or who your parents were, or in some cases, uh, what your talent might be. So, a fascinating lecture there. And there are many Civil War characters, including one we'll talk about today, Benjamin Butler, who, who fits that mold a little bit. Uh, so before we get to that, finally, the last item is the reminder of the Did Lincoln Own Slaves? Bicentennial Tour. Uh, I will be talking about Lincoln and, his, uh, and the questions people ask about him in Gross Point, Michigan on March 18th, Austin, Texas on March 19th, at the Civil War Roundtable there. Uh, April 14th, at the Loudoun County Civil War Roundtable in Leesburg, Virginia. That's where Ball's Bluff is. If you're anywhere in the area, uh, uh, take a day off of work. Uh, You'll probably be losing your job soon anyway. So go to Ball's Bluff. See the fantastic uh, preserved battlefield there and come and join us at the Civil War Roundtable that evening, April 14th. April 25th, uh, Harvard University at the Lincoln Bicentennial symp- Symposium. Uh, that will be a wonderful program. Uh, I would go if I had a travel budget left in my department, even if I weren't speaking there. David Herbert Donald, Doris Kearns Goodwin, Drew Faust, Jim McPherson, uh, Vernon Burton, who was on the show last week and was absolutely fascinating, uh, will be there. You don't want to miss that program if you're uh, anywhere within uh, range of of Harvard on April 25th, May 5th, Doylestown, Pennsylvania, the Bucks County Civil War Roundtable, uh, and the following week, May 12th, Richmond, Virginia, Civil War Roundtable. I'll be speaking with groups there. And then uh, after a summer of recovery, October 22nd, at the Dorsey-Pender Civil War Roundtable uh, right here in eastern North Carolina, Rocky Mount, North Carolina. So lots of places. It's been fun to talk about Lincoln, travel around, and meet listeners to Civil War Talk Radio. And uh, if if you can, come by and say hello. It's always good to get feedback from listeners. Send an email uh, if you can't come by, or uh, send a letter the old-fashioned way. Uh, those are still accepted here. And uh, let me know who you'd like to have on the show and, and what we can do to make it better and more interesting. One thing certainly would be for me to stop talking and move to our topic of the day. So let's do that and bring in our guest, Michael D. Pearson. Uh, Michael, are you there?
3: I am here, yes. Thank you,
2: Jerry. Uh, Thank you for being on the show. Uh, Can I call you Mike? Some Michaels don't like that. Please do. Uh, Well, thank you for for joining us. Um, I'm holding a copy of your book here, Mutiny at Fort Jackson, The Untold Story of the Fall of New Orleans. And uh, it is an untold story that I'm curious to learn about, but let me uh asked, since you and I haven't had a chance to meet before, uh, a little bit about your own background. Uh, you, Your day job is at the uh, University of Massachusetts?
3: Uh, that's right. Uh, one of the branch campuses here in uh, in Lowell, Massachusetts.
2: So uh, uh, have you... Which,
3: which you might te- be known to you as Ben Butler's hometown, which, uh, which might play into... Uh, what we're going to talk about, but that's a pure coincidence. That's all that well,
2: I'd, I'd, I highly doubt that. I, I think uh, it would make sense to study somebody with the archives handy, but uh, to me Lowell is the town that marks the fact you're about halfway around 495 in the endless journey uh, <laughs> yeah. going around Boston if you're coming from, from North Carolina headed up to Maine. Yes. And you go around and around, and finally you get to Lowell, and you go, geez, it's only Lowell, I've still got an hour to go.
3: You're almost there.
2: You're almost there. You're almost to New
3: Hampshire, kind of.
2: sort of. Right. In a 40- but it is a fascinating city. The the uh, uh, From a public historian's viewpoint, it's one of the places where people first began preserving 19th and 20th century industrial landmarks it is. Uh, as historical sites.
3: Um, and, and it still is a wonderful place to visit. You know, I I, uh, I know you've been talking in the last couple of weeks about budget cuts at, at East Carolina, and we could talk about budget cuts at the University of Massachusetts Lowell. And and I suspect our listeners probably are dealing with their own budget cuts, and maybe they don't want to hear a bunch of academics uh, complain about larger class sizes and schemes that administrators come up with. Um, but uh, the the Park Service obviously has had its fair share of cuts over the last, well, over the last two presidential administrations. And uh, but it's still a wonderful town to visit. Right? We have a lot of good restaurants, and, uh, and and there's a lot going on. I think that's one thing we can say about Lowell.
2: It, the, the Cambodian, uh, I recall, uh, was noted at one time as the Cambodian capital of the United States. Is that still the case?
3: Um, yes, I think it is. Yeah. Um and, and you'll hear people say that twenty five percent of the population of Lowell is Cambodian, and I, I don't gather that's actually true, but um but certainly uh there is a large Cambodian uh uh population in Lowell still and they're starting to make their way out into the suburbs as they get more and more materially successful. Um and they're starting to make their mark on, on architecture in the town. Um you start to see restaurants that uh that have Cambodian or Southeast Asian style uh, architectural flares about them. It's it's getting to be an interesting place to live.
2: Hmm. Well, that that uh, I mean, the entire Boston metropolitan area is, uh, is interesting. It's certainly uh, the right word. It it may not be always the nicest place, but it's one of the most fascinating places uh, in the country. You you are never bored. <laughs> That's true. Of if you are, it's your own fault. Right. Um, well, let me ask you: You before coming to to UMass Lowell, uh, what was your your career path, or or specifically, how did you get interested in in Civil War studies?
3: Um, I could I could trace it all the way back to being a, a high school student, if we wanted to go back that far, and uh, being a member of the Civil War Roundtable uh, that met in uh, Hamden, Connecticut. We used to go, here's a, here's a Civil War trivia question, not unrelated to your service area. Uh, we, our, 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 one of our annual events was that we would go off to the uh, cemetery to lay a wreath uh, at the grave of General Terry, Union military commander, who, if I really wanted to put you on the spot, I could ask you what his most notable accomplishment was. Um, is this the
2: Terry from the Army of the Ohio? Um, I don't
3: know what his service is. Here's a hint, before 1865. And I know he eventually ends up with Custer.
2: The the Uh, Custer-Terry, that's what I was wondering. That's the one I was thinking of. Uh, Terry, Custer, and Gibbon had the three columns that were supposed to converge.
3: Oh, right. Okay. All right.
2: If if that's the Terry. Uh, It is. That that is the
3: Terry, indeed. Uh, But before he made it out to uh, the greater little Bighorn area, uh, he was in charge of the expedition that took Fort Fisher off of Wilmington.
2: That's right, of course.
3: Um, oh. and, and so he uh, he was notable enough to uh, to get a wreath on his cemetery every year. Ah. And then, of course, I went to Gettysburg College. Uh, was a history major. Natural enough place to go if you're interested in the Civil War and you're 18 years old. Get to spend four years bicycling around the. National Battlefield Park, and at that point you're pretty much hopelessly lost. You're you're basically a Civil War person, and uh, and so I, I went on to graduate school, and and I've taught at a, a variety of schools. I've I've taught in public universities in Illinois and Arkansas and Kentucky, and finally landed here in Massachusetts in uh, 1999, and I I don't have any plans to leave anytime soon.
2: Well, well, good. It's good too. Good to have a home academically, into yes, to belong somewhere. That that's very good. I've often wondered that about people who go to Gettysburg College. Uh, I mean, having visited many times, it, it's literally on the battlefield when you're it at is. college, and uh, the uh, the infamous bulldozing of the the railroad cut to build oh. uh, athletic fields yep. uh, shows how close the two are connected. Yes. But the I imagine there must be some students who go there and just aren't touched by it. Uh, i've I've true? known many of them yeah <laughs> and and
3: you know there are, there are people who who regard it simply as a place to go jogging and and it is that um we we could talk about the the sort of purposes of of civil war battlefields uh but certainly when they were first created, um there was a conception of them in in many ways that they would simply be parks uh, they would serve a a historical uh instructive purpose, but that they would also be places where where people could go and get out in the country and get their exercise and enjoy a little bit of nature and then go home refreshed. Uh, so I think they serve a number of, of different purposes, and certainly that was the case at Gettysburg. We won't mention the purposes that uh, the National Park was occasionally put to by uh, by people during fraternity hazing exercises.
2: Okay, well, we'll leave that out entirely. We'll, we'll just
3: leave that out because that's uh, that was rather... A disreputable use.
2: <laughs> so, so, passing over that, you, you find yourself at uh, uh, at Lowell at the University of Massachusetts. And uh, uh, were, did you begin working on this current project or on, on the book uh, "Mutiny at Fort Jackson" while you were in Lowell? Did Benjamin Butler have some connection to that, or was this an earlier project? This was a, a project that I first—I uh, I remember working on
3: it first in 1993. Uh, which is a good six years before I uh, arrived in Lowell, or or had ever really been to Lowell, uh, for that matter. Um, And it was just something that I had uh, picked up in the course of reading Bruce Caton and Shelby Fote, various others, uh, popular Civil War writers. Um, so I knew there was a mutiny at Fort Jackson, and I knew that it was important, and I knew that it had a lot to do with the fall of New Orleans, which is in and of itself, I think, an extremely important event in Civil War history. Um, but I wasn't sure it w- that anyone had really yet come up with a, a, a solid explanation for why that mutiny had occurred. Um, we all knew it was there, um, and it gets one or two sentences in most histories of uh, uh, of the war, or or maybe the history of Louisiana and the Civil War, it, it gets them a sentence or two. And uh, I thought it was about time we figured out why that mutiny actually happened.
2: Well, the uh, l- let's play out a little bit what uh, the, the context of the mutiny, uh, or maybe the context of the whole uh, New Orleans campaign. This was in the spring of eighteen sixty-two that the Union. Uh, makes an effort to capture New Orleans, and and they go by sea. Um, So where is Fort Jackson in relation to New Orleans in this campaign?
3: Um, Fort Jackson is about 65 miles uh, south of New Orleans. It's right on the banks of the Mississippi River, um, which is about halfway to the Gulf. Um, It's basically in the middle of an extremely swampy territory. Um, There is another second Confederate fort right across the river, which is Fort uh, St. Philip, um, but it is the main principal Confederate uh, line of defense uh, between uh, the United States Navy and Army uh, transport ships uh, in the Gulf of Mexico uh, and the lower Mississippi and uh, the city of New Orleans itself. There really is, there, there's a a very minor defensive line, much closer to the city itself, but uh, it will not detain Farragut's ships for much more than about 20 minutes. So what we're really talking about here is the main Confederate defense uh, for the city of New Orleans.
2: So if Farragut wants to get his Navy up the Mississippi River, he's got to go between Fort Jackson and St. Philip and, and, and defeat those forts in some way.
3: Absolutely, and and what uh, happens is is that the the union uh, brings we could think about maybe uh, two groups of uh, warships or or just generally ships uh, into the Mississippi River. We have Farragut's uh, uh, warships uh, along the lines of the Brooklyn and the Hartford, the the really famous uh, ships that are designed uh, as warships uh, and are designed to to be able to withstand a certain amount of military uh, beating from the forts. Um, And then there are also the really lightly uh, protected and and largely unarmed uh, ships. These are the supply ships and the Army transport ships.
1: Mike,
2: Um, let me interrupt you here for just a moment. We're going to take a short break with the music that I hear and come back and find out how these ships make their plan to go by the forts and and how the confederates respond. We'll do this when we come back in just a moment on Civil War Talk Radio.
1: Listen, listen.
2: The world is talking. World Talk Radio. The fall of New Orleans in 1862 was brought about by the Union Navy, resisted by the citizens and military of New Orleans, or was it? We'll find out what other factors were involved when we come back on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars... But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And Mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to earthshare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by Earthshare and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael D. Pearson, author of Mutiny at Fort Jackson, the untold story of the fall of New Orleans. In our first segment, we talked a little bit about the campaign at New Orleans, the existence of Fort Jackson and Fort St. Philip, bordering the Mississippi River, preventing Union ships from going upriver to the Crescent City, uh, both forts are garrisoned uh, with Confederate troops. They have artillery. The Union warships and their more lightly uh, constructed transport ships need to get by those forts if they 're going to capture the fort uh, if they 're going to capture the city of new orleans uh, th- so uh, michael tell tell us what happened. Uh, you can run the ships right by the forts, but now you're just on the wrong side of the fort if you do that. Uh, what, what strategy did the uh, Union Navy come up with?
3: Well, that that was exactly the strategy uh, that, that Farragut came up with, is to, uh, after bombarding the fort with, uh, with mortars for approximately a week, um, uh, he grew somewhat impatient with that strategy because it wasn't showing any signs of working. Uh, And in the night, uh, he uh, took the uh, heavily armed and uh, somewhat protected uh, uh, wooden ships in his fleet and he uh, sort of blew right past both of the two forts in the cover of darkness, um, took uh, approximately 100 casualties, certainly more than that, um, and and arrived uh, more or less safe and sound on the other side, north of the the forts, and was able to uh, steam up the river. To New Orleans, and and I think that's that's generally what most uh, of our listeners probably um, know about the the New Orleans campaign. Because it's really at this point that most uh, military historians sort of regard the 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 campaign as as being over and and successfully won for the United States. It's at this point where Farragut can train his. Uh, the batteries of his ships on New Orleans, he can destroy New Orleans if he chooses to. Um, and uh, Fort Jackson has, uh, and Fort St. Philip have been left behind him, um, cut off uh, from uh, from any resupply. Um, and and certainly the the massive fighting is over uh from a from a very traditional military history uh approach um, Most of the blood has been been shed the, the battle is is over the cannons are silent um and we just sort of leave it at that um, but I think we we shouldn't do that because really at this point in the campaign, i think the uh the campaign is 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 really hanging in the balance uh at this point. Uh, Farragut could destroy the city of New Orleans, but I think we imagine we can easily imagine that that would be a public relations nightmare for the lincoln administration if uh, if the United States Navy would simply take to bombarding a city of one hundred and seventy thousand people and Leaving it in ashes, I, I think that would be uh, that would be a horror of the modern world. Uh, certainly at that point, and uh, so Farragut really is is stuck uh, at New Orleans. He he can't bombard the city, and he also can't occupy it. He doesn't have the the troops to do it. The troops are still in the transport ships south of Fort Jackson, and if you try to sail those transport ships densely packed with Union troops past the 75 heavy cannon in Fort Jackson and, and the almost the, the similar number in Fort St. Philip, it will be an absolute bloodbath. Um, so really, as long as Fort Jackson and Fort St. Philip hold out, um, Farragut can, can lie idle off of the, the, the levee at New Orleans, but he can't actually occupy it. Um, and that's going to be a that's going to be a, a dramatic uh, uh, problem for uh, for Farragut, because Fort Jackson has, at this point, to the best of our knowledge, at least six weeks worth of food, um, and and plenty of ammunition. Uh, they have uh, six hundred and thirty some odd troops in Fort Jackson and a similar number in Fort St. Philip. Um, it is very hard to get any Union infantry anywhere near uh, Fort Jackson, let alone. Uh, siege equipment that we might want them to have uh, if they're going to take these gigantic brick uh, forts. Um, so we're really at a dramatic moment uh, here, and, and one that I'm not sure military historians have fully appreciated.
2: And, and I mean, given the ability of forts like you know, garrisons like Sumter to, to hold out, uh, at least in terms of having food if, they, if they're not directly under fire, right. uh, uh, certainly this really does set a military problem
3: um it does, uh, and i'm i 'm thinking Fort Macon in North carolina um which is able to hold out for a while um until the siege guns can be properly brought up it it is it's, it's
2: and uh, and fort Fisher, as you mentioned earlier in the show uh, absolutely certainly there there 's no shortage of examples of, of determined garrisons holding out for a long time in the civil war so um okay so we we 've got the uh a real question what uh, what's the solution well at this point
3: it, it's 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 right at this moment where where something really dramatic and, and unprecedented happens something which I would argue doesn't happen in the whole rest of the American Civil War at any point. Um, and that is when the the garrison at Fort Jackson um, at eleven o'clock on April eleven o'clock at night on April twenty seventh eighteen sixty two rises up in mutiny against their officers. Um, they will line up line up on the the parade ground in the center of the fort, uh, seemingly under the command of their non commissioned officers who are in on the mutiny. Um, and they will demand that uh, that the fort cease firing and, and cease fighting against the United States uh, military. And uh, when the Confederate officers uh, resist this, uh, the the mutiny, uh, men will take uh, shots at uh, their Confederate officers. They uh, they take some of the heavy guns up on the uh, the upper level of Fort Jackson, uh, and they turn them around and, and so that they're trained not outside the fort but are trained into the fort so that the mutineers uh, manning those guns can command the, uh, the parade ground of the fort where their officers are. Um, and the officers quickly realize that there's really nothing that they're going to be able to do here, that they have lost control of the situation. Um, And just to continue the the story all the way through, uh, approximately half of the mutinous uh, soldiers, about 250 to 300 of them, uh, are at that point going to, essentially with the officers, um, I don't want to say permission, but there's nothing the officers can do about it, about 250 or 300 of the Confederate soldiers then walk out of the fort um, and surrender to the 200 Union infantry uh, that have managed to make their way north of Fort Jackson. They surrender quite happily to uh, to the Union troops, uh, who we might add outnumber them. The uh, you know, Confederates outnumber the the troops they're surrendering to, um, and the approximately 300 uh, Confederate troops who are left, the mutinous uh, Confederate troops who are left in the garrison, uh, essentially stay there overnight. But the next morning, uh, they convince their Confederate officers that uh, that what we really need to do here is surrender and that's what we want to do and that's what we can make you do um, and so later that day uh, the fort surrenders to the United States Navy
2: so the the obvious question and, and we'll just jump in with the deep end is why did they do this what, that is uh, the question yes and, and it, that's I gather the question that brought you to this topic initially yeah I think we you know we've
3: known that the mutiny happened um, but we haven't known why it happened and um, I initially thought that uh, that this was perhaps a, a politically loaded question that maybe uh, historians who sympathized with the Confederacy uh, simply wanted to skip over this event because it's, it's kind of embarrassing. Uh, and it can lead to difficult questions uh, for uh, Southern historians, particularly ones that are sympathetic with the Confederacy about what the nature of the Confederate government is. Um, But it turns out that probably the the one thing that that really stymied people from trying to figure out why this mutiny happened is that we have absolutely no written records whatsoever uh, from any of the mutineers at all. They are are completely silent, um, at least in any direct way. They have not written any diaries or letters that have made it into libraries or historical societies or archives. So it's a tricky topic to uh to try to do some research with and and what you're going to hear from me over the course of the next approximately half an hour is a series of inferences um and and, and some educated guesses um all of which I think over the course of I think it's about 190 pages hopefully add up to a convincing argument but we're just going to have to wait and see. I think that's one of the the interesting things about this book is is to see um whether we can whether I I sort of pulled something together Um, Which is going to make a convincing argument or not?
2: Well, let's start with the soldiers themselves. The um, uh, one thing that that people who who study the war realize quickly is that not the soldiers are different. Uh, um, In particular, in this case, the garrison has at least three is constituted of at least three units, and they're all quite different units. Uh, What were their backgrounds? We do. We have a, a, a,
3: a what we might call a, a a diverse uh garrison in uh in Fort Jackson and I think it might be a good point at this uh time to uh introduce the idea that there are eight companies eight military companies in uh in Fort Jackson and seven of them participate in the mutiny and one of them Uh, stays loyal to the officers. Now, the bad news for the officers is that one loyal company, a group called the St. Mary's Cannoneers, is actually not stationed inside the brick walls of Fort Jackson. They're stationed right outside of Fort Jackson, an earthenwork battery uh, that's that's targeted uh, on the river, and it's just south of Fort Jackson. The mutineers knew that the St. Mary's Cannoneers were not going to participate in the mutiny. Uh, and they took every precaution to make sure that the St. Mary's Cannoneers were not going to be able to get into the fort during the mutiny. They, they basically locked them out of the fort. But it, when you start talking about uh, very different groups of soldiers in the Fort Jackson uh, garrison, we could start with the St. Mary's Cannoneers because they are from St. Mary's Parish. It's a sugar-growing parish west of uh, uh, New Orleans. It's on the Gulf of Mexico. Um, It's a wealthy parish in terms of the value of the sugar crop, Um, and it's a a parish that relies very heavily on uh, slave labor and on sugar production. Um, The population there is about 23% white. Uh, About 77% of the population is enslaved. It's a tiny, free black population, but it numbers less than 200 people. Um, so this is what we might think of as, as a, a sort of hyper-South uh, parish, uh, a parish which embodies uh, the essence of plantation agriculture and plantation slavery. The, Fort, uh, the St. Mary's uh, Parish Garrison stays very loyal uh, to the Confederacy during the Mutiny. Why? Probably because all of their officers... Uh, are slaveholders or the sons of slaveholders. All of their non-commissioned officers are slaveholders or the sons of slaveholders. Um, And I think that within the rural world of St. Mary's Parish, they control a lot of resources. Even if you're a non-slaveholding white, um, you're looking at at a world, your world there in St. Mary's Parish, where your officers are going to control the economic resources. Of, of the town, they're going to be your primary customers uh, as planters, you know, I mean whether you 're a tailor or a brickmaker or a barrel maker you're going to be selling to these people and the The wealthy element in Saint Mary's parish has also come up with a uh, a free market where they distribute free food uh, to the uh, the families of soldiers. I think as long as the uh, the, the St. Mary's cannoneers, even the men in the ranks, stay loyal to the confederacy their families are going to be taken care of, um, and their world is going to remain more or less intact. I think there's every reason why they would stay loyal to the Confederacy, um, in the same way that lots of other Confederate military units will endure very hard times uh, in other places throughout the Civil War. But that brings us to the mutineers, and there are I think, uh, are a very different group of people. Um, and all of the other seven... Uh, military uh, units, the other seven companies are recruited, not from the rural South, but from New Orleans itself. Um, And they come from a very different world. It's more anonymous. Um, It's much less reliant on the institution of slavery for its economic well-being. It's a much more wage-labor oriented uh, world, more anonymous world. And um, they are going to, I think, by uh, by the end of the book, the argument is that those people from New Orleans. Uh, poor whites, wage workers mostly, um, most of them immigrants, are going to decide that the United States of America is a a better world for them. It's a better choice for them. and They will be more prosperous. Their city will be more prosperous if the United States flag flies over New Orleans than it will be if the Confederate flag flies over New Orleans.
2: What about um, um, race in the matrix with these immigrants, I mean, with the, uh, all the soldiers are white, and uh, the argument is frequently made that that non-slaveholding whites are still willing to support the Confederacy because uh, slavery secures their their place on a social ladder, at least one rung off the bottom. Uh, Do the immigrants share this view as well?
1: I
3: think, it is possible that many do. We should remember, of course, that uh, that many immigrants uh, in New Orleans do enlist in the Confederate Army, uh, enlist very early in the war and fight uh, very vigorously, the Louisiana Tigers being the most obvious example um, in Lee's Army uh, right out of the, the streets of Louisiana. So I don't think we can get away from that argument entirely. But I think that we should also remember um, a kind of a Horace Greeley argument that there are... Um, Many whites who are going to realize that slavery, uh, that having the presence of unpaid laborers um, in the population makes it very hard for free white labor uh, to compete against the uh, against uh, uh, unpaid labor, um, and I think they're smart enough to realize that. Um, I think that uh, that many of them are going to realize that slavery drags down wages rather than, than somehow elevates it or elevates them. Um, the other thing that, uh, that I think is going on in uh, Fort Jackson is that about a third of the garrison seems to be from the German states. They're, they're first-generation uh, Germans, and I think either they or their parents uh, have fled uh, from the German states after the 1848 revolution. This is the the big liberal revolution. Uh, against monarchy in uh, the German states in 1848, and in other uh, European countries as well, obviously, in 1848. Um, And these folks bring with them their liberal ideas. And and I don't mean liberal like Barack Obama liberal. I mean liberal like um, they believe in democracy, um, and they believe that uh, uh, we ought to have the vote, um, and we ought not to have a king. Um, and that slavery is is not actually desirable. They don't bring with them uh, a strong sense of racism from Europe. Um, in fact, they bring with them a sense that uh, men are created equal. And uh, and when you when they arrive in New Orleans or or for that matter in Texas, they're going to have a, a hard time. Uh, being loyal Confederates uh, because they do have this, uh, this belief in egalitarianism. And they'll be a thorn in the side of Confederate authorities, as a number of historians have shown, uh, in Texas. And I believe that they're also going to be a problem in Fort Jackson.
2: Well, this is interesting because it, it conflicts to some extent with traditional uh, views. And, and we're going to explore this more in just a moment. We'll come back with our guest, Michael Pearson, on Civil War Talk Radio. of the little guy against overbearing authority. But who was the overbearing authority in New Orleans in 1862? We'll find out when we return on Civil War Talk Radio.
0: In an instant, my son could make anyone smile. In an instant, he was gone. The driver was looking for other cars. But he didn't watch out for my son crossing the street. Imagine, in the time it takes to stop for someone in the crosswalk, you could save a life or change yours forever. A message from the Federal Highway Administration. Every day, the chances of becoming a victim of mercury poisoning increase. Mercury poisoning may cause neurological damage that impairs learning, vision, and memory. And mercury itself has become part of our everyday lives, absorbed by certain fish, taken into our bodies, and passed on to our children like a common cold. But you can stop this. Log on to EarthShare.org and find out how. A public service message brought to you by EarthShare and the Ad Council. You're listening to World Talk Radio.
2: Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Michael D. Pearson, author of Mutiny at Fort Jackson, the untold story of the fall of New Orleans. Before we get back to the story, I'd just like to say that I learned something every week on this show, often from the public service announcements that uh, the... Uh, world talk radio overlords play during the show um, just as I was getting complacent about the threat of terrorism attacking, uh, attacking me here in Greenville, North Carolina uh, because New York City isn't the only target I've, I've learned from these spots. Uh, Greenville apparently is next on the list. Uh, just when I was getting complacent about that, today a new threat mercury poisoning has been added to the things to keep me awake um, with a new public service spot. So I'm uh, uh, just enjoying the new new thrill of tension and stress brought about by the possibility of mercury poisoning to go along with all the other uh, other things we've been warned about over the, the months. Here on Civil War Talk Radio, it's enough to make one want to move back mentally into the 19th century, and that's what we'll do here. Uh, we've been talking uh, with our guest, Michael Pearson, about uh, the Confederate uh, rebellion Within a Rebellion, the mutiny of Confederate soldiers at Fort Jackson outside of New Orleans in 1862. And we were just discussing what what brought this about. These uh, Confederates were immigrant soldiers uh, and apparently less connected to the ideals of the Confederacy. And I want to throw out the idea that, uh, uh, Mike, that I, I got from your book, that the, the very ideals of, of the of what we perceive as American ideals, uh, uh, democracy, uh, uh, widespread suffrage, at least male suffrage in this era, were not necessarily those of many of the leaders of Confederate New Orleans, uh, and that they, they saw perhaps a more Jeffersonian, uh, agricultural, aristocratic society uh, forming that... in, in the Confederacy. Is that accurate?
3: Well, I think that's... True, and, and you know, there's a, a lively debate I think going on about this uh, among historians uh, now. But there certainly was a, an attempt on the part of uh, much of the Confederate leadership during uh, secession uh, and in the time period, uh, certainly in the year, the sort of Confederate year that uh, for New Orleans, from secession in 1861 to the fall of the, the city in, in April of 1862, to kind of turn the clock back a little bit. Um, One of the the things that I found interesting was that, of course, we equate New Orleans with Andrew Jackson. Uh, He defends the city successfully in 1815. There's a big statue of Andrew Jackson in the middle of, uh, what would it be called? I think Jackson Square. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a very sort of Andrew Jackson city, and yet um, many of the Confederate uh, leaders, politicians, and and, and civic leaders uh, found the idea of Jacksonian democracy quite alarming. Um, and sort of the last thing they wanted to do uh, would be to have democracy. And, and it's not just in, in New Orleans and, and Louisiana, but it's in various other places across the South. There's an attempt to kind of turn the clock back on, on democracy. I, the, the Confederate president uh, serving a longer term, not up for re-election because he can only serve one term, is perhaps the most obvious and, and well-known uh, aspect of that um, but I think there's been a lot of uh, work recently. Frank Towers uh, at the University of Calgary has done the best work on this in
2: uh, New Orleans
3: um, about saying that there really is a fear not just of democracy, but of the whole industrial age that uh, that we're going to somehow become too much like the North. And, of course, for an industrial uh, worker in New Orleans who is an immigrant who relies on wage labor for his or her livelihood. Um, the idea that we're going to somehow become a, an agricultural slaveholders' republic without cities is—I mean—they're taking away your jobs, just as, as certainly as the recession is
2: today. So uh, the the rebellion. I, I want to—I don't want to shortchange the discussion of the mutiny, but I do want to skip ahead. And this, this mention of the beginning of the industrial age brings us back in a way to Lowell, Massachusetts and uh, its favorite son, uh, Benjamin Butler. In the aftermath of the mutiny, the Union-Navy captures uh, an army and Navy together, capture Forts Philip and St. Uh, Jackson, and St. Philip, and then uh, eventually move in and occupy New Orleans. And here those same tensions uh, that you've been talking about between uh, the immigrant population and Confederate leaders play out uh, with the Union soldiers themselves. Uh can you talk about uh, about that? Most of us have an understanding of Butler and the famous Woman Order and uh, uh, some of the the, the well known stories. Uh, do they accurately capture what happened in New Orleans once the Union troops moved in?
3: I think we should have some uh, some reservations about the traditional uh, stories that have been told about uh the uh the United States military presence in New Orleans and the amount of opposition that they met from the the white population of the city um I think there's been a lot of storytelling, and let's face it. Ben Butler makes a great story there there's there's no doubt that he is perhaps the homeliest of the union commanders um he is uh he is an inept military commander and it certainly proves that in eighteen sixty four and again in eighteen sixty five um he's an easy target he 's a political general, and, and by and large historians have hated uh, political generals often correctly um, and so it 's easy to 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 demonize uh, uh, Ben Butler, um, just as it 's easy to sort of celebrate um, what looks like a very grassroots campaign on the part of the city 's population to oppose him and and we see that um, that that sort of I, I almost want to call it a, a cute uh, resistance uh, to the to the Union, union military presence, and, and I, I don't say cute just about uh, the fact that all of a sudden women are opposing it. Uh, but we kind of turn William Mumford, the the gambler who tears down the U.S. flag and is eventually hanged for it. He, he's a perfect uh, sort of sad face victim, a uh, poor man who is in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the mob seems like a, uh, the mob that opposes Farragut's officers when they demand the surrender of the city. That seems like a very grassroots sort of American uh, popular resistance to uh, the city coming in, or the, the union coming in and taking over the city. Um, but I don't think that's actually the whole story. Um, one of the things that, uh, that, that sort of has surprised me as I've gone through it is just how quickly... The City of New Orleans uh, becomes
2: completely
3: well adjusted to the idea that there 's a union military presence uh, in the city um, i you can You can find on the day after Union troops land uh, in the city uh, there 's a, a story about uh, I found in a, in, a, I think it was a, a letter here in Worcester, Massachusetts, um, where one of the poet Longfellow's uh, sons wanders uh, through the streets of New Orleans with uh, the son of a clergyman from New Haven, and they wander around essentially unarmed, one of them in uniform, through the city of New Orleans and are completely unharmed on the second day. Uh, that uh, that Union troops are there. On the n- night that Union troops land in New Orleans, a uh, Union brigadier general walks around the city unarmed, uh, in uniform, by himself, um, asks for directions on how to get places. He's, he's not killed. He's not mobbed. Um, there is, in fact, a, a large Unionist uh, a population in the city of New Orleans that is glad to have uh, General Butler and his troops in the city; they cooperate actively with him. Uh, on July 4th, they'll stage flag-raising uh, demonstrations. Uh, people will go to the uh, the opera or the music hall uh, with uh, with Union soldiers in uniform. Uh, they'll be they'll be okay being seen there with these people. They'll rent out rooms to. Uh, to uh, union officers. They'll have parties where union officers attend and go dancing with with local women. Local women will manufacture uh, U.S. flags and present them to a Connecticut regiment on May 17th, uh, which is just two days after Ben Butler's woman order um, is issued. So there's a lot of evidence of the fact that this city is not a unanimously Confederate city. And, I, and when you think about the place of New Orleans in the writing about the Civil War. You think about it as, or at least I think about it, as as the most Confederate of all cities. You know, you don't see this kind of popular protest in Nashville. Um, You certainly don't see it on the same scale in Memphis. Even Charleston, when Union troops take over, it's quiet. Um, There's no popular Confederate protest in Richmond when Richmond falls. New Orleans has this flashy opposition, but it's not existing in a vacuum, and they don't speak for a unanimous white population of the city. Rather the reverse. Um, I, I think it's a heavily contested um, uh, battle between uh, Unionist civilians in New Orleans and, and Confederate uh, civilians in New Orleans, and the fight lasts um, off and on for uh, for a couple of weeks, but I would argue that by the time Ben Butler leaves... Uh, and by the time the United States holds congressional elections in uh, in November December of eighteen sixty two, that um, that this is a Union city, um, and that the United States has won a very firm hold, um, not just over the military allegiance of and, and military loyalty, militarily imposed loyalty of the people of New Orleans, but in a lot of ways has won over the hearts and minds of the population of New Orleans as well. well
2: it's it's interesting. Um... Especially given the the, the the scenario you open the chapter with, where uh, as the Union uh, ships are approaching, there are, are these Unionist civilians of which you speak uh, on on the levees waving to them, and Confederate militia come and start shooting at them, yeah. shooting at civilians. Uh, that that was really quite a, a, a shocking scene, I thought. Yeah, it's it's um.
3: This is this is the opening to the to the whole book and it, it's short, but it's an incident that I had never learned about until I started going pretty much deep into the archives uh, for this project. Um, union ships sail up this is this is farragut's warships they they arrive off the city around noon uh, uh, on a kind of rainy day, and they are on the levees to to meet farraguts ships is not a pro confederate mob, which is what you hear about uh, but is in fact a, a group of uh, civilians from the city, um, overwhelmingly white, apparently, um, who are waving U.S. flags and, and, and waving happily to the Union fleet as it arrives. This this has been documented in other places, uh, that this would happen in the Confederacy when the Union uh, military first appears. But certainly this is, this, this is the first time we would hear about it in, uh, in the case of New Orleans. And the Confederate military does open fire on that group of, uh, of civilians. And we don't have a, a good sense of who was killed or even how many. Uh, but we knew, do know that the Confederate, uh, Confederate government does, uh, its army does fire on uh, women and children who are waving U.S. flags. And I think that should tell us that this is a very serious contest, that, that this is a, a, a battle which is going to be fought. And fought seriously. Um, and one that no matter what side you're on, on, on this war, and even as a historian looking back on it, um, you can't regard this as, as cute. And, and um, the protests by women, the protests by others, it's a very serious matter.
2: So the, the romantic stories, the, the woman order, the dumping of chamber pots, this sort of thing, is, is more than a trivial uh side note but a reflection of a much deeper struggle. As much as it would be appropriate to uh explore this further, we are approaching the end of our time. But let me ask a quick question about uh Butler himself, uh and his role in in, in this. He as you said he's portrayed uh, as the uh you know, you pointed the least effective commander of the entire Civil War. Um, well well expand on that uh, that that doesn't give him a fair shake
3: no it it doesn't because i i think that uh what the united states government really needs in new orleans in 1862 is uh an administrator with political experience in governing over a large industrial city a large commercial capitalist uh society Um, And that is exactly what Ben Butler is. Um, He comes from Lowell, Massachusetts. He's been a state senator uh, in in, uh, representing Lowell and the Lowell District. He has a lot of experience. He knows how to manipulate uh, political scenes on the streets. He knows how to uh, manipulate patronage. Uh, He knows what to do with government jobs and how to get people to support the government in exchange for a job uh, and a paycheck. He knows how to talk to immigrants because he's a Democrat from his 1850s experience. Uh, um, as a Democrat, immigrants had been his core group. Um, he can deal with uh, with Catholics um, as, as people, which is something not every Protestant could do in the 1860s uh, from the North or anywhere else. Um, he is really just the man on the spot to set up an administration for an urban area, in 1862, and the people who are most likely to support the Union are the people who Ben Butler is is really comfortable with. That's working-class immigrants.
2: Working so, with- so once again, one might think that Abraham Lincoln has made no mistake in <laughs> getting his <laughs> man turn. in the right place there. Um, he really has, and I, I have no proof
3: that Lincoln was thinking, let's get a big-city politician uh, to govern a, a big city like New Orleans. Um, but if Lincoln was thinking that, I don't know that he was, but if he was thinking that, we really have to take our hats off. We have to uh, we have to add another another thing, another item to the list of things to have uh, celebrations about Lincoln. Uh, for uh, here at UMass Law, we had Lincoln Fest on his two uh, hundredth birthday, and uh, we should uh, we should continue to do that even when it isn't his two hundredth
2: birthday. Well, I certainly agree with that. Unfortunately, you and I are out of time today. But, Michael, I want to thank you for being on the show, uh, and and hope we can do this again sometime.
3: Yes, and and good luck to the stars as they
2: continue their season. Thank you so much. Uh, Michael D. Pearson wrote Mutiny at Fort Jackson, the Untold Story of the Fall of New Orleans, uh, a book you'll find interesting listeners. I hope you can read it, and thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio.